Hey, this is Stu at Bitcoin Fi, the cross section between financial independence and crypto. Today, I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I had with Michael Waymans. Michael and I met on LinkedIn, similar to how I had met Edward Gorbis, the last person I had on the podcast. And Michael had some very insightful posts on LinkedIn about Bitcoin and about crypto. We started talking, and I found out that he's got a blog that's very similar to mine. And it's geared towards people getting started in crypto. His website is bitbeginner.com. Now it's currently only in German, but sometime this spring it will be translated into English. Michael has also started two businesses in the past, one of which was called the Blockchain Academy. He has also published a book on Bitcoin. So I was really excited to get together and talk about some of the most common pitfalls, mistakes, and issues someone just getting into crypto might experience. And today is going to be part one of our conversation. Just so you know, it took place over the Christmas break. I hope that you enjoy it and find it relatable to your own journey into crypto. And with that, let's get started. All right. Welcome to the show, Michael. Glad to have you on. Thank you for having me, Stu. No problem. Do you think you could give us a quick rundown on your background in crypto, how you got into it, why you got into it? Sure, no problem. So uh, I read about Bitcoin in early 2014, I believe it was, and uh, read about how the price went from $30 per unit and skyrocketed all the way to about $1,200. And the obvious conclusion for me was to uh, make some calculations in my head of how much money I missed out on. And uh, yeah, that's, that was just my first exposure to Bitcoin, hearing about how the price developed in an insane way. But I got into it in 2015 because I noticed there was a crash that happened from $1,200, I think, all the way down to 200 And all I knew about Bitcoin back then was that it's some kind of decentralized digital coin, and there seems to be an opportunity to make profits. Um, I didn't know anything else back then, but... Because it appreciated in 2015 and 16, uh, I started to look into it more. I started researching Bitcoin and it already had gone up like by 400%. So I wanted to understand what's actually going on here. And what really caught my interest was the proof of work, decentralized consensus algorithm, uh, the limited supply, and how like the monetary inflation rate or the production rate works with a block a subsidy halving and other things. So it was like multiple variables intertwined that caught my interest more and more. And that's when I got deeper into the rabbit hole, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's all pretty interesting. That's the stuff you learn as you get more and more into it. It is pretty cool how you mentioned that this consensus algorithm, this proof of work and, and the block subsidy. I guess how it is monetary policy written by code instead of written by politicians, instead of written by governments, right? It's pre-coded monetary policy. It's pretty interesting. It's a pretty novel idea. Yeah, and also it has a long history of development. Like even before the white paper of Satoshi Nakamoto was published in uh, October 2008, there was decades of work flowing into this, which is very interesting, like eCash and Bitgold and other unsuccessful developments in the past that tried to establish such a decentralized 
censorship-free system, which all failed because of one simple reason, uh, which is the double spending problem that couldn't be solved without a third trusted party. And the double spending problem is that we can send a picture, right? Something digital back and forth. I can make a picture and send it to 1 million people. So if I send it to you, I can still send it to other people. And that was the problem with a digital decentralized monetary system outside of a centralized structure, because you could send these units to multiple people. And there's not a ledger of trust that we can rely on. And that's what Satoshi Nakamoto solved with blockchain technology, with the proof of work consensus algorithm. That is the real revolution of Bitcoin. And, and he describes it on his first uh, page of the white paper already. You bring up the double spend problem. This is kind of an abstract concept. I'm hopeful that we can explain it simply enough. But like you said, if you have a picture on your phone, you can send that to a thousand contacts, right? And they will all have that picture. So how do you send something over the internet? How do you send something digitally that is unique, that there is only one, right? To avoid that double spend problem. And that is really the, the fundamental idea of Bitcoin is it's the first time you could send value over the internet. And through that proof of work, through decentralized, everyone validates that transaction. Everyone knows it. Everyone has uh, an interest in, in avoiding that double spend. I think that is kind of the central idea. It's, it's pretty hard to conceptualize at first, for me at least. But yeah, this is why it's called a digital asset. It's because it is, in theory, scarce. So instead of one person keeping track, everyone is keeping track of it and everyone is incentivized to keep track of it. I heard this on NPR's Planet Money. With the digital scarcity, with the proof of work, this is a simplified way of thinking about it, but it's as if we were all sitting in an auditorium with a microphone in the middle, and whenever you transact or want to transact, you have to go down and get on the microphone, and you announce to everybody, I'm sending a Bitcoin to so-and-so. Everyone in the auditorium has a notebook a ledger that they're keeping track of everything and they will all record that transaction. And that incentivizes everyone. Everyone is keeping track in the network of every transaction. That's what the blockchain is essentially. Yeah, and adding to that, um, the person that steps up to the microphone cannot just announce that they want to make a transaction, but also they have to already have that amount in their wallet so everybody looking at their notepad can see if the person that's stepping up to the microphone actually has this amount in their ownership. Yeah, they have a list of all the historical transactions and everyone's current account balances, right? And I guess the only way that you can really mess up this double spend problem is if you were to convince 51% of the people to go back and change something. And then you could double spend. Like if I said, I'm sending you a Bitcoin, but I wanted to trick you, I'd have to hack 51% of the network and convince them that I actually didn't send it to you. And then I could send it to someone else too. So anyway, it's really hard to do because everyone's incentivized to keep each other accountable.
Exactly. And regarding the 51% attack, it's not only hard to do because the uh, hash rate of the Bitcoin network is at an all-time high now. So it's a very energy-intensive process. Uh, but also you would have to uphold this attack for a long time. Okay. I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole, but so when we first talked, we were kind of reminiscing on some of the mistakes and the problems that we faced when we first got into crypto. And that's what we wanted to really talk about today was the beginner's journey into crypto, some of the behaviors people struggle with, some of the challenges that people new to crypto have, things that they don't know, the different ways that they mess things up. So let's get into some of those. What are some of the most common issues that people face when they first get into crypto? And then maybe we can address some of the solutions to those problems. Well, I think the first pitfall everyone falls into, like I don't like absolute statements, but I think this is actually a true one, <laughs> um, is that Bitcoin seems like an obvious fraud at first glance. It seems like a Ponzi scheme. It doesn't obey basic economic rules. You know, it appreciated several million percent in just the last decade. So it cannot be anything else than a bubble, kind of. That's the maybe the first and second uh, impression of it. But then it keeps appreciating over the years. So suddenly, you know, you just start scratching your head and you're like, okay, maybe I should revisit uh, this whole thing and look deeper into it. So I think the first pitfall is just putting it off as, you know, this greater fool theory uh, thing where people just keep buying into it and making the price rise and then other people sell it. So it goes back down, citing like tulip mania or the dot-com bubble, things like this. And especially from my experience in the last years, financial analysts have a hard time wrapping their heads about this um, because they see people with absolutely no investing experience make money and you know, they've studied finance for multiple years. They have their bachelor's, master's, and uh, they've seen it all. They will, you know, cite these things, like I said, to mania.com bubble. It looks like a get rich quick theme, which you don't fall for anymore if you have experience. Let's talk about it being an obvious yeah. fraud at first. Like people having this strong negative reaction to crypto when they first hear about it. I think some of it maybe comes from you're upset that you missed out, but I don't know what the solution is exactly to that besides we're trying to just open up people's minds to the possibilities. I had a very strong reaction because I consider myself to be a boglehead. I'm coming from the stock market, passive index funds, low fee, this financial independence, retire early movement. That's all that they really care about. That and maybe real estate. And when you look at the greatest investor arguably in American history, Warren Buffett, and he is just blasting it left and right. And Jamie Dimon as well, who has been around the block a few times, seems to have a really good pulse on the economy and just tons of experience with investing. But like you said, what's the real truth? I think the real truth is that any new currency, as it's adopted, is going to see those kind of returns especially against a weakening currency. But anyone that has held Bitcoin 
for four years or longer has made money. And the average annual return is about 200%. So I don't know if we'll keep seeing that in the future because past results do not indicate future returns, but we are still about 2% of the population. If you think about all the people and all the companies that may adopt it, like Lemonade Insurance just added it to their balance sheet. If it keeps going the way it's going and gets more adoption, it, it can get pretty crazy, I think. But I guess that's just me. And I think these numbers you just cited, the 200% um, and the 2% of adoption, we only see these high returns because we're in an early adopters phase. So there's a volatility, right? That's one of the main reasons people refrain from investing into Bitcoin because volatility is automatically associated with risk. Um, but what we see here is like with other technology, Bitcoin is more a technology than a financial instrument at first. That's why a lot of software developers get into it before financial experts. They uh, are quicker with, let's say, understanding the whole concept of Bitcoin. And new technologies tend to follow an S-curve of technological adoption. And with Bitcoin, we see exactly that. We see the fractally repeating and exponentially increasing hype cycles throughout the last 12 years, which is often cited as like a Bitcoin roller coaster ride. And this adoption curve is still in its early stages. You said 2% of the population approximately have Bitcoin and that rate is increasing year to year. And of course, people are um, speculating a lot and jumping into other altcoins, which we will be discussing. What you're saying with the adoption curve, this S-curve, I'll link this in a companion blog post, but at the first level of adoption, you have the innovators. We're past that stage. Right now, we're in the early adopters phase. Next comes the early majority and then the late majority and then the laggards. You can also look at this as a bell-shaped curve and we're still in the rising of the bell-shaped curve. And I'll, I'll give a, a visual of this in the show notes. Yeah, and I think another pitfall is that we oftentimes don't account for the speed of innovation that's happening with Bitcoin. I'll give you two examples. In early 2017, there were a few days where transaction fees in the Bitcoin network were over 60 US dollars per transaction. And the headlines spread like wildfire, you know, that the transaction fees are so high. But this changes with time. So now we have solutions for this with the Lightning Network. And that also diminishes the myth of transactions being limited to seven per second, which wouldn't allow it to scale in a global fashion. With Lightning Network, we can now have, in theory, millions of transactions per second, while at the same time having you know, fees in the network that are far less than a cent. So this innovation potential and the speed of innovation is very important to understand with Bitcoin. That's why many people refer to Bitcoin as the new Bitcoin, because it keeps evolving. And the most important part of the network is that it's decentralized and safe and building 
a better Bitcoin over time in a very conservative fashion, not doing things or implementing new functionalities too quickly. I'm not sure if you know this, but I figured I'd ask anyway. Did the segregated witness upgrade have anything to do with the fees? Well, the segregated witness part was a huge discussion and topic of debate in mid-2017 in August, where there was a fork uh, in the Bitcoin network. And SegWit or segregated witness is a functionality that was added to the Bitcoin blockchain, which increases the block size limit by removing the signature data from the transactions. And that alone doesn't help the scalability of Bitcoin or improving the number of transactions, but more what can be built on top of segregated witness, which is, for example, the Lightning Network. Okay. So it was more a necessity to have SegWit to then build on top of that. What brought the transaction fees back down from those high levels? Because I saw a headline a while ago or, or some news blurb where someone moved a billion dollars in Bitcoin for about a buck 50. Yeah, so the Bitcoin transaction fees depend on several factors. One of them is how congested the mempool is. So how many people are transacting at the same time, right? Because miners are incentivized monetarily. So they would like to process transactions first, which bring them more money. So if there's a high mempool congestion, too many people transacting at the same time, they will prefer the transactions um, that pay higher fees. And that was the craziness of the 60 US dollar transaction fee. This goes down dramatically. For example, we can see that very clearly when the tr uh, price drops. So after 2017-18, the beginning of 18, when then the price dropped from 20,000 back to you know, three, $4,000 after a year, much fewer people were using um, the Bitcoin network and thus the transaction fees were lowered. At the same time, new solutions were implemented like SegWit and the Lightning Network, um, which allows for off-chain transactions that can be settled immediately. And that also brings down the, the network fees. So there's different variables to consider on this. I don't want to go too far down the Lightning Network rabbit hole. That's a whole other topic. But to put it simply, the way I look at this is, for example, let's say that there was a highway. Specifically, I have one example in Utah where there's this legacy highway that goes between Ogden and Salt Lake. And it's a two-lane highway. The speed limit's a little bit slower, but that's the original highway. It's the legacy highway. And like I said, it's just two lanes. But then a few hundred feet over, you have the new highway and it's got four or five lanes. And so what it does is it takes some of the transactions off of the legacy highway. And then it, it goes over to this highway with more lanes and we do all of our transactions there. And then it kind of batches all those off-chain transactions and then resettles them back on the original legacy highway that is Bitcoin. Is that 
kind of a good way to think about that? It's a very good way to explain it. And basically to summarize it, the Lightning Network was a necessary second layer solution to fix both transaction costs and speeds. Because with seven transactions per second, with a fee of over a dollar per transaction, Bitcoin would never be able to be a global currency for microtransactions, for example. And also it just wouldn't scale uh, properly with seven transactions per second. So this was one of the biggest problems of the Bitcoin network, which has been solved. Yeah, and I think this is one thing Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, talks about a little bit is how indestructible Bitcoin is because it's like a superhero that can't be killed in a way. And not only that, but if you have two superheroes and you have the one that's just indestructible, just like super tough and you can't really kill it. And the other one will just say shoots lasers out of his eyes. Right. And he's shooting the lasers out of his eyes at the indestructible one, but the indestructible one doesn't just die, but it also absorbs that power. And then now it can shoot lasers out of its eyes. So that's kind of like Bitcoin. It is code. The core code hasn't changed, but you can build stuff on top of it. It can absorb these other properties and become better and better. You can code any extension for it. And so it's very anti-fragile. It's not just tough, it's anti-fragile. Exactly. And I think one, uh, one other good example we've just seen recently is mining being made illegal in China. It was uh, one of the big criticisms in the last years that mining of Bitcoin is very centralized in China. I think there was some numbers being thrown around that 80 or 90% of mining took place in China. And it was a lot of that was uh, dirty coal energy. So now that they uh, deemed it illegal, the hash rate, we can see it transparently, went down dramatically. But at the same time, because the price was still very high, there's a monetary incentive to mine. And what happened? A lot of this, this mining industry moved to the US or other countries that are mining Bitcoin now in a more sustainable fashion. And now the hash rate is at an all-time high in the Bitcoin network. So this, let's call it attack on the Bitcoin network actually showed how resilient the network has become. Yeah, definitely. It's been pretty interesting to watch all those miners relocate a lot going to Texas. I think even a lot going to Kazakhstan or you know Iceland that has a lot of geothermal energy that they can use that's really energy efficient. It's really cheap and it's renewable as well. So there's different studies that show that the Bitcoin network is actually accounting uh, or the mining of Bitcoin is already at more than two thirds from sustainable energy, which is higher than the leading countries of the world uh, when you look at their sustainable energy rate or percentage. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so let's move on to uh, what's the next pitfall that people run into? Well, we kind of touched it a little bit already with the uh, speed of innovation. So a lot of other cryptocurrencies that are 
created out of nowhere, which are often referred to as altcoins, like alternative coins, market themselves in a way that they say, well, Bitcoin is nice and all, but we have faster transactions, we have lower fees, and our consensus algorithm is less energy intensive. So it sounds great, right? You can make uh, thousands of more transactions. The fees are much, much lower. And yeah, it seems it has a clear advantage over Bitcoin, but this comes um, at great cost because proof of work and the whole hash rate or energy behind the Bitcoin network actually creates safety and stability of the network while it's also very decentralized. So other alternative cryptocurrencies are oftentimes not as decentralized as Bitcoin is. And if we really want to create a decentralized alternative monetary system, then I believe that the two most important factors to have is a very much like a high percentage of decentralization and safety. And with other cryptocurrencies, they're often pre-mined, like they, you know, you can click of a button, they are there. And, and then you see uh, token holders that, you know, maybe five addresses already have more than 50% of the tokens. And yeah, there's not a lot of participants in the network. And it's more really concentrated on trying to debate the Bitcoin fallacies or pitfalls and uh, trying to improve on them in a marketing concept way. Like it's more show and shine than actually having technical fundamentals behind it. Yeah, I think there's a few factors here. And looking at some of the notes that we had put together, we had three of these pitfalls that we listed. And one of them is it's too late now. Another one was altcoins and another one was unit bias. I think these three play into each other really strongly and we'll get into unit bias a little bit more, but I guess what you're saying is with altcoins, there's a lot of trade-offs. And I've, I've kind of talked about that before. You are either sacrificing security of the network, you're sacrificing this level of decentralization, and you're also sacrificing some amount of scarcity and a lot of concentration, like you said, with these pre-mines, five wallets hold 50% of the coins out there, right? So it's totally lopsided. I mean, Bitcoin is a little bit like that. It's a little concentrated. It's pretty heavily concentrated, actually, but some of these altcoins are far more concentrated than that. Yeah, they're far more concentrated than that. And also uh, Bitcoin seems to be quite concentrated, but oftentimes in these articles we see about Bitcoin concentration, they don't account for the first uh, few big wallets being exchange wallets, which represents literally millions of users. So that's a very important role. Uh, additionally, there's many... Bitcoin whales out there that haven't moved their funds for more than a decade. So it's quite reasonable to think they don't have access to these wallets anymore, uh, which further 
accounts uh, for distribution and also the way bitcoins are mined uh, from the protocol there's still 10 percent of bitcoins uh, not even produced yet or in circulation yet uh, so by design bitcoin will probably become more distributed with uh, time passing by and not more concentrated so yeah what's the solution to this i guess are we too late for bitcoin should we go into altcoins I, I, it sounds like the takeaway is mostly no <laughs> we, we shouldn't go into altcoins and it's not too late well yeah i don't think it's too late at all i think we're still early if we look at what bitcoin what value it brings, you know, being permissionless, global, without borders, being able to send a transaction anywhere in the world for a few cents uh, at lightning speed uh, in a scarce way. All of these traits, and there's many more, give Bitcoin value. And if we look at countries with, you know, developing countries tend to have a much higher inflation rate. And there's more than, I don't think, like 1.5 billion people in the world that don't have a bank account in any way. So Bitcoin can provide a lot of value to these people. And therefore, looking at the adoption rate, which we mentioned earlier already with being at about 2%, there's still a lot of potential uh, for yeah. Bitcoin to evolve in the next years. So no, it's not too late now. And the volatility has been going down over the years and will probably continue to go down long term, still a few decades away, probably till Bitcoin really becomes stable. But I do believe that sometime in the future, it will be very stable that it appreciates less than your average stock per year. But for the next decade, I think it's the other way around. So yes, we're not too late now. And looking into altcoins, is interesting i've come to the conclusion that you know i don't like especially these meme coins it's it's just a marketing hype concept i think there's nothing behind it okay that makes sense so let's move on to unit bias can you explain what that is a lot of people don't know that you can even buy a portion of a bitcoin like oh fifty thousand dollars i don't have that i do believe in bitcoin it's great it looks like the future of money but now I missed the train because it's so expensive. I can't afford that. So I'd rather buy tens of thousands of Shiba Inus because that I can afford. So for us, maybe it seems such a basic trait of Bitcoin that of course you can buy a small, small, small portion of it, like 0.00000 something. But for many people, this already is not a known feature. No, it's true. And I, I think more people are learning from stocks because more and more brokerages are allowing fractional shares because if you wanted to buy a share of Amazon, it's what, $3,000 or more. And so a lot of people couldn't even buy one share if they wanted to, but some brokerages are letting you buy $100 of, of Apple and you get one thirtieth of a share. Exactly. Bitcoin is divisible and we have the smallest denomination being Satoshi's like 100 million Satoshis is one Bitcoin. And people tend to think that having a higher number of something is worth more or that you can then make more money out of it. So if I have one pizza and I divide it into 10,000 
pieces, I still have one pizza. You know, and if I divide it in three pieces, I still have one pizza. And it's a very simple bias, but it's very strong, especially with people that are just getting into this market to try to retire uh, in a few hours, <laughs> trying to make a lot of money. And we can see that especially with these meme coins because they make use or take advantage of this unit bias. So you will see Doge, uh, Shiba Inu and other cryptocurrencies that are like 0. 0.000 something dollars per unit. And if you invest into Bitcoin and let's say $100, you get 0.001 Bitcoins. And you know, you might think, oh no, I didn't, I didn't get that much, but with $100, I could get millions of Shiba Inus. Right. And so what you're saying is we get kind of short-sighted because you want to just own one Bitcoin and you're thinking to yourself, I can't afford one Bitcoin. It's $50,000. Okay. Well, maybe this is where that other pitfall of, oh, it's too late. So you start thinking to yourself, okay, well, what about Ethereum? Well, I don't have $4,000. I can't buy one Ethereum. So I'm not going to do that. Okay. Well, what about Doge? It costs 20 cents. Okay. I could buy 200 or 2000 of them, right? You want to own those full units and you think it's better because you own multiple of them or at least one whole one, something like that. Or, or maybe Solana might be a better example where currently it's around 150 a coin, I think. So you think to yourself, well, maybe I'll just own three Solanas and that's probably better than owning one eighth of an Ethereum. And that may not be the case. Exactly. I mean, if we just measure Bitcoin with Satoshis, 100 million Satoshis, then suddenly you can totally uh, take the unit bias and, and leave it to the side because it's not there anymore. With dollars, we also have cents, right? 100 cents is the same as having $1. So you don't have more if you have 100 cents. Uh, it's the same thing. Yeah. That all makes sense to me uh, now, but definitely something that tripped me up in 2017 when I was like, yeah, Bitcoin's not for me at 10,000. And luckily Ethereum was 500 at the time, but then I still found myself chasing Verge and Tron and Arc and Lisk and all these other coins that ended up doing nothing when I should have been focusing on Bitcoin. Hey, it's Stu. We're going to quickly pause the interview here and continue the rest of it next week. So make sure you tune in for that and finish out our discussion. There was a lot of great stuff Michael was able to share with us, and I'm really grateful I was able to have him on. Make sure you connect with him on LinkedIn and look for his website to be translated into English if you're looking for additional resources later on this spring. Thanks to everyone listening and leaving reviews. And if you found value in the show, please share it with a friend. And with that, remember that financial independence is doable.